Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues and our world today. I am Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. I'm so excited to introduce our guest today. He's certainly the most influential monetary policymaker we've ever had on our show. President Bill Dudley is the former president of the New York Federal Reserve from 2009 to 2018. And before working at the New York Fed, he was the chief U.S. economist at Goldman Sachs for 10 years. It's such an honor to have you on our show. Thank you so much for joining us today, Bill. It's great to be here, Tiger. It's such a rare opportunity to interview you. And and because Policy Punchline is run by undergrad students like me, uh, I think it's way more valuable and fitting for me to ask you questions more about your diverse experiences and your career and, and try to understand what got you to where you are today instead of just the more technical questions that you've already answered on CNBC. So um, I want to begin by going back all the way to the time when you were a student. Uh, you completed your PhD in economics in UC Berkeley in 1982. Uh, I'm very curious as to um, what made you decide to pursue a PhD degree? Uh, how did you decide on which path to pick uh, when you graduated from college and after you completed your PhD? It took a while for me to make my decision. After uh, college, I moved to Boston with my girlfriend, and uh, I had a couple different jobs. I was a methods analyst at an insurance company, which is sort of like an efficiency expert. And then I was a, a bank examiner for the state of Massachusetts. And uh, after being a bank examiner for a few months, I realized this wasn't a great career track. And I decided that I was going to apply to graduate school uh, and law school. Uh, I, the college I went to was, was a very small uh, little college in Florida called New College. It had no grades. It was completely unstructured. So I wasn't really sure you know, where I would get in. <laughs> so I applied both to economics and, uh, and law school. And, and fortunately, I got, into, I got into Princeton and I got into Berkeley uh, in economics. And I went to Berkeley because Berkeley was uh, cheaper. Uh, after the first year, I think, at Berkeley, it was going to cost me $900 a year tuition. And uh, Princeton was a little bit more expensive. So so, so Berkeley won, won out. So, uh, had Princeton lowered their fees, we would have had you as, perhaps, as an alumni right now. P- perhaps. perhaps. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm making progress. I got When I applied to, to college, I got waitlisted at Princeton undergraduate. I got into the graduate school. And now I'm actually here as a professor. So I'm making progress. Uh, so you didn't always know that you wanted to be a policymaker. No, or... but I, I liked economics because uh, it was analytical, and I liked it because it was actually tied to the real world and to policy. So, you know, I, when I was young, you know, a kid, I was thinking about, my, you know, when I was like 11, 12 years old, I was going to be a nuclear physicist. That was sort of what I thought I was going to be. That's the cool thing back then. <laughs> yeah. And, but then as I did more science, I realized that it was a little bit divorced from everyday life. And so I wanted to get, get something that was a little bit more applied. And so that's where economics sort of fit in. And right after you finished um, your degree at Berkeley, you started at Fed's Board of Governors in early 1980s. Uh, did you like it? How did that experience sort of influence your worldview? Uh, I liked it. Um, you know, what was interesting about the job is we got to run projects uh, to, to answer questions. Like one question was the Treasury was about to implement a, a direct deposit program. 
and they wanted to know how much it was going to cost them because under direct deposit, you lose the money immediately. And if you write someone a check, it takes some time for the check to actually come back and for the money to be debited from your account. So the Treasury asked the Fed how long <laughs> are our checks outstanding. And so we had to go to all the different reserve banks and sample checks and figure out how long. It turned out it was about seven or eight days it took for a check to actually hit the Treasury's account. So it was you know, working on practical problems like that, coming up with you know, good you know, answers. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Was there any huge hours of research, writing long reports? Uh, there, you know, the projects you know did result in you know, you know, somewhat lengthy reports, uh, and there was definitely time for uh, for, for doing research. Um, you know, the only reason I left really was I got a, essentially got an offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, J.P. Morgan uh, was hiring for a regulatory economist. And they only had one regulatory economist in the entire company. So it was one of those kind of situations where if I don't take that job, uh, that job's not going to be available <laughs> you know, two or three years uh, down the road. So I sort of felt I had to take that opportunity because it was just such a good opportunity to get into the policy world, into regulatory policy, which is something I was very much interested in. So it wasn't for, for monetary incentives. It was more going into private sector to take a, a private sector view on policymaking and regulatory practices. Yeah, I just thought it was a good opportunity to learn. I mean, most of my career decisions have been about uh, learning. Learning, yeah, exactly. Building human capital is the way I put it. And, and back then, uh, J.P. Morgan wasn't called J.P. Morgan yet. It was Morgan Guarantee Trust Company. Uh, right. What my wife, my wife is a is a Morgan Guarantee Trust alumna, alumna <laughs> uh, and her view is that's that's the real J.P. Morgan. <laughs> Uh, and then it was Goldman Sachs yeah, after that. After that, yeah. So I was doing regulatory policy at uh, J.B. Morgan, and that was interesting as I got to learn that that body of work. But regulatory policy during normal times changes very, very slowly. So I realized this is probably not something I want to do for 20 or 30 years. And so I had another opportunity where a headhunter called me and said, do you, would you like to work at Goldman Sachs uh, doing macroeconomics? And I said, well, I'm not a macroeconomist, but I'm happy to go to the interview and surprisingly, I got the job. I got the job, I think, because I knew a lot about uh, banking, and they wanted someone with that kind of background. So I went to Goldman Sachs to do macroeconomics, even though I wasn't really that well-trained as a macroeconomist. In fact, in graduate school, I got one B in, in, in graduate school, and that was in macroeconomics from George Akerlof, who is oh. Janet Yellen's yeah. husband. So yeah. <laughs> sort of ironic. Got you. Um, and you eventually became the fir firm's chief U.S. economist. Correct. For 10 years. Uh, how was that experience? Um, uh, it was a lot of uh, f fun. Uh, I mean, a lot of hard work, but a lot of fun in the sense that we got to work on a lot of different kinds of issues. Uh, you know, it wasn't just about monetary policy and fiscal policy and G real GDP. It was uh, we worked on healthcare reform and the thrift crisis and the LDC debt crisis, Social Security reform, a lot, all sorts of issues. I mean, my view at, in that job was if we could do work that would be useful to uh, Goldman Sachs clients, then that was worth work worth pursuing. Uh, and so it was a pretty broad. Uh, range of work that we got, we got. So I learned a lot during that period. And on our way here to the studio, you were just telling me that uh, you're more of a fast-paced person, more so than... Well, that's why I think academia didn't really suit me. One, I didn't think I was going to be smart enough to win a Nobel Prize. <laughs> uh, and number two, it, it's, it's slower moving in the sense that it takes a long time between when you write a paper for that paper to actually get published. And I, I wanted a little faster pace. 
And aside from all the markets and economics, how did Goldman Sachs, I guess, shape the way you look at this world? I mean, from how did the firm's culture shape you as a person? Well, I think it's you know really really high expectations in terms of uh, the quality of work and the effort that you put in. Uh, you don't uh, survive at Goldman Sachs unless you you are are good and work very very hard. I mean. You know, if you told me that I was going to spend 20 years at Goldman Sachs after my first year, I would have said, oh, shoot me, because <laughs> it's just really hard work. But, you know, one year becomes two years, two years becomes three years, and eventually you have a, have a whole, whole career. So the other thing I, I liked about the place is that it was pretty collegial in the sense that the firm had a pretty strong uh, culture of if someone calls you up, the right answer is, how can I help you, <laughs> as opposed to, what, why are you bothering me? So I like that kind of team orientation, and I think that's one of the things that's you know helped Goldman Sachs do well uh, over time. And compared to your former employer, uh, J.P. Morgan, I think they were pretty similar. Uh, you know, as we were talking, as we walked over, I mean, J.P. Morgan was a little bit more formal. Uh, for example, uh, you weren't allowed to leave your desk without your suit jacket on uh, within the J.P. Morgan uh, building, so it was a little bit more formal. But but the same idea of uh, collegial. Uh, team effort, uh, very similar. Uh, so I thought the cultures were pretty compatible with each other. Got you. Uh, and in 2007, after being the uh, Goldman Sachs U.S. economist for 10 years, you were hired by then president of the New York Fed, Tim um, Geithner, to oversee the department in charge of buying and selling government securities in New York Fed. Yeah, the markets group. Uh, right. Um, so you left Goldman Sachs for the New York Fed. Was that a big transition for you? Well, it was big in the sense that I was going from running a very small group to a much larger group. The markets group had about, I think when I joined, 230 people, and it grew to about 400 people uh, during the crisis from, from a group where I had you know maybe 10 people under my uh, watch at, at Goldman Sachs. So that was challenging from a, from a management perspective. And I was no longer really doing economics. I was really doing, uh, you know, there are a lot of operational uh, aspects of what the markets group does. But I felt like it was related to what I'd done before. In other words, my knowledge of the economy and of markets would, would, would you know, be useful. Uh, I probably had more uh, knowledge about financial markets than most people within the Federal Reserve System. And so that was something that I felt that I could contribute uh, so I felt, I felt I, I had, a, I felt that I had a lot to learn, but then I've also felt that I had something to contribute because I had a background that was quite different than the background of of, of many of the people within the Federal Reserve System. Uh, and when you were nominated to become the New York Fed president, I guess following the same trend of thought, I was wondering, was there any thought holding you back from? Accepting that job, I asked as because um, I know you also read Paul Volcker's uh, memoir, Keeping at It, and, and in his memoir he said um, that he did, his wife Barbara didn't want him to be reappointed as the Fed chairman in 1983. So he told President Reagan that he would only stay on half of the four-year term as a condition for his reappointment. So I'm curious as to no, there was no hesitation. Uh, you know, to me. Being president of the New York Fed was like an absolute dream job. It was a job that I, you know, in my dreams, you know, aspired to. And, uh, you know, when I got the job, I, I felt for, for really months like I just like had to pinch myself to make sure that it was really happening. <laughs> so this is something that I felt that, uh, you know, this was an opportunity I really wanted. And, of course, we're in the middle of a financial crisis, too. Right. So there was plenty to do. 
so it was a particularly uh, challenging but also fascinating period to, to be the president of the bank. Um, and, and how do you think the experience in the markets group helped you prepare for Well, I think that, you know, you think about the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, it's essentially the operational arm of the central bank. So most central banks, the policy part and the operational part are all in the same place. You know, say Banque de France, you know, you know uh, Bank of Japan. I mean, they're, you know, they're in the same place. Here in, in the U.S., it's split. You know, the policy is made in Washington by the Federal Open Market Committee and the Board of Governors. But the implementation of monetary policy is done in, in New York, and so that's what makes it a little different. So the New York Fed has a little bit more, uh, you know, weight than you would think, uh, as, as just being a Federal Reserve Bank. It's not just the, a Federal Reserve Bank; it also is actually the bank that implements monetary policy on behalf of the Federal Reserve. Uh, so, as you were just saying, New York Fed is in a quite unique position as to many other regional Feds, um, and also because the New York Fed. President has a permanent seat on the Federal Open Markets uh, Committee as the as the vice chairman. Um, so, like, what kind of a pivotal role do you think you played or your job played during your tenure from 2009 to 2018? Well, I think that I was, you know, very fortunate because I had some really good uh, people to work with, and 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 chair. Chairman Bernanke, Chair Yellen, and and Chairman Powell. So the fact that those people were open-minded and receptive to, you know, my perspective and, and my point of view made me a lot more effective than I, than I would have been if they had been, you know, not that interested in what I had to say. And I th as I said, I think what, you know, I brought to the table was, one, the New York Fed's perspective. In other words, knowledge of markets, knowledge of how the plumbing of the financial system actually works. And also my own knowledge about, uh, you know, how markets behave, especially when, when under stress. And so, you know, I think I had something to contribute from based on my experience and background, and I think they were very, uh, you know, willing to receive, uh, you know, that 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 perspective. So it was a, you know, I felt it was a, with all three of them, you know, very complimentary. Really, it was a lot of fun to work with them. And, you know, it didn't have to be that way. I mean, you could have a, a situation where the Federal Reserve Bank of New York president and the chair of the Fed don't get along yeah. particularly well, and in that case. Guess what? The New York Fed isn't going to contribute so much. But doesn't New York Fed isn't it obligated to execute whatever order? Sure, sure, absolutely. I mean, uh, basically, what happens at the FOMC? The FOMC makes a policy decision, and then, the, then there's a directive uh, issued to the New York Fed. This is what we want you to do. We want to keep, you know, so currently they want to keep the federal funds rate in a range of two and a quarter to two and a half percent, and yep. then it's up to the New York Fed to make sure that happens. So the, the the Washington arm doesn't specifically tell the New York Fed this is how much you need to buy sell. Well, there you know in the old days, uh, the, you know prior to two thousand and eight, uh, th there were just calls between the New York board staff and the New York Fed staff about you know how much reserves needed to be added or drained from the financial system today to keep the federal funds rate at at the target. But subsequent to the fall of 2008, uh, the Fed monetary policy regime changed to one where policy is set by the interest rate that the Fed pays on reserves. So the Fed doesn't have to intervene on a day-to-day -day basis anymore. But the New York Fed was very, very important uh, working with the board in terms of you know, developing this new regime, uh, developing the overnight uh, reverse repo facility, which was part of this uh, new regime. Uh, so, you know, on monetary policy, the board and the New York Fed staff 
and the principals in, in Washington and New York work really closely together on policy. And what specific things do you have to do day to day as the president? Well, there's lots of aspects of the job. I mean, not only is there the issue of you know what's the appropriate monetary policy and how are we going to you know set that, but also the New York Fed is also really important internationally uh, for the Federal Reserve because uh, the New York Fed has several trillion dollars of foreign. Uh, central bank uh, assets uh, that it manages in custody at the New York Fed. And the New York Fed president uh, is a representative in uh, Basel at, at the Bank for International Settlements. And unlike the chair, who goes every other meeting, alternating with the vice chair of the board, the president of the New York Fed goes every meeting. So the president of the New York Fed is really you know, a, a, you know, a continual presence in, in, in Basel at the Bank for International Settlements. Kind of a diplomat. Well, it's a meeting with foreign central banks, uh, bankers, uh, exchanging views, uh, working on you know policy-related issues. Uh, I was chair of two different committees for the Bank for International Settlements. One was uh, uh, on payments and settlement system, and the other was on the global financial system. And those committees, which were you know composed of very high-level people at various central banks around the world worked on really interesting subject matter. It was fun to be the chair of those committees. How would you categorize the differences between interacting with foreign officials and domestic bureaucrats? Was was there one? I don't think it's that much different. That different. I mean, you know, I think the one thing that you know that made it easy uh, in Basel is that all central bankers have pretty similar goals, you know, in terms of, you know, full employment and price stability in a, in a well-functioning economy. And so they speak the same language. They sort of share the same sense of, you know, what the pressures are in the job. And so there's a, it's a fraternity of sorts. Uh, and so you drill, you, you develop, you know, good personal relationships with those people. I, I went to Basel, I calculated once 55 times uh, during my tenure at, at, at the Federal Reserve. So I got to know these people pretty well. Is there sort of less red tape? Um, well, you know, not you know, in 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 the discussions that take place in Basel, you know, these are not discussions that are that are implementing policy. Uh, they're really more exchange of information. You know, we would explain why we're doing what we're doing, what we're thinking about doing. They would explain what they're doing and why they're doing it, and you know, we would learn from each other. Uh, and. Also, I think that it's a forum to work on uh, issues that cross, uh, you know, internet, you know, international boundaries. Right? I mean, we live in a global financial system, but we have all these national, you know, uh, central banks and national regulators, and we need to understand that to have a, a good financial system, we have to, we can't just stop at the edge of the country. It's got to be able to extend uh, more broadly. Um, after you became the New York Fed president, you were in effect a public figure that would constantly need to, f- need, need to face the public opinion, even criticism sometimes. How do you make sure that you still have the space to think and remain calm and rational with all those noise and hectic work? Um, well, you do have to have a thick skin sometimes. I mean, sometimes you are going to get criticized for things that you might think are you know, a little bit um, unfair. I'll give you an example. So I was at a, at a, at a, uh, uh, I think it was a luncheon or a meeting in the morning in, in uh, I think it was in Queens, New York. And uh, I was talking about inflation and, you know, people said, you know, people there were experiencing, you know, inflation that they thought was pretty high. 
But the actual measured inflation wasn't really that high. And I said, well, you have to look at the price of all goods. Uh, for example, the, you know, the second-generation iPad had just come out, and it was twice as powerful, <laughs> yeah. but the price hadn't changed. And so, so really, the, pri- the effective price of that iPad had fallen a lot. And you know that that seemed like a pretty innocuous yeah. observation, but someone in the back of the room said, "I can't eat yeah. an iPad," yeah. and because that person in the back of the room said, "I can't eat an iPad," it became a story, yeah. and I was a little bit cast as Marie Antoinette, telling people in Queens, you know, go out and buy cheap iPads, and that really wasn't my intent. So if I, it was one of those sort of unlucky things where I literally bought the iPad for my my wife that morning online. So this idea of this iPad was really present in my mind, uh, but it probably wasn't the best uh, example. Right. Um, so it's, re- it's really hard to remain calm and rational with, with so much. But like I said, Tiger, I think you have to just have a thick skin and, and you know stay focused on what the mission is. I mean. You know, I, I've been I've been sort of fortunate that my temperament is pretty you know calm. I'm not <laughs> someone that gets really excited, uh, uh, and so you know it helps to be just sort of a calm person by temperament. And I've been sort of lucky, and that's not something you can do some, anything about it. You're either born that way or you're not. Uh, so if you are calm, that makes it easier to ignore all, all the noise that's sort of you know, flo- fl- you know flowing around you. I mean, there's there must also be so many things for you to do, right? Every day. Just, oh, there's plenty. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, sometimes you feel a little stretched. Sometimes you feel like uh, there's really too much subject, too many different subjects that, that I need to be sort of expert on. Because at the end of the day, the decisions of the bank are, in a sense, the decisions ultimately that the pr- president's responsible for. So you feel that you need to get informed as much as possible, so you can make sure that the, that the bank is making the, the the right decision, but that's a lot of things to be knowledgeable about. Do you still have time to relax and take time off? Because because I read like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett spend like four hours a day reading books to take time off and think about life. And uh, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I think you know, obviously, it was more practical for for me to to have enough time because my wife and I we didn't have any children, and so if we had a family and we were also having to also having to tend to a family, I think that would have made it a lot more 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 difficult. And the fact is my wife was a former uh, JP Morgan banker and so she's also, you know, more understanding of, you know, what I was doing and why I was doing it and so I think that made it easier to sort of keep up. Do you think it's really hard for people to do everything, family, career, um, become I, truly well-rounded? I think it can be I think it be challenging. I mean, part of the problem, you know, you have to learn how to delegate you know, and it's hard to delegate, right? Because when you delegate, sometimes the people you delegate to won't do the job quite as good as you would have done it. And you have to sort of realize that most of the time that's okay. Uh, that's part of the learning process. You know, that the first time they do it, they're not going to do it maybe as well as someone who's more expert in it. But over time, they'll learn and their and their capabilities will, will increase. Uh, I, I can remember many times where you know, I delegated something, and then and then the person would would take it and move it forward. And there would be moments where I, I would cringe to myself and think, "Oh, I, I wouldn't have done it that way." But end of the day, nothing really particularly bad happened. Uh, and so you just sort of learn that the consequences of are not so bad. So, learning how to delegate, I think, is a really really important part of actually being able to run a big organization. Has there any ever been a moment where you were? Particularly contrarian uh, that that your view differed from everybody else's, and 
um, you, but by that I mean it's there's so much information around us, so many opinions throw us at us every day, and it seems that every side can justify themselves. So how do you come up with your own thesis and an opinion? Well, it's, it's sort of. I mean, I've always tried to do two things. One, try to identify what's truly important and what's not. I mean, one of the problems we have today is is it's not like we don't have a sufficient amount of information. In fact, you could argue we have too much information, and then sorting through that information, deciding what's important and what's not that's really critical. You know, in looking at financial markets over the last you know several decades, I've all I've I've sort of looked at it this way: What's the big assumption in financial markets that might not be correct? And if it turns out not to be correct, what will happen? So, a good example of that is you know housing prices never fall on a national basis. Well, if so, what happens if they actually do fall on a national basis? Well, then things are going to start to break. Um, if you go back and look at the transcripts, you know, in 2007, 2008, when I was running the markets group, I used to brief the FOMC. The fir- I was a f- essentially the first briefer at every FOMC meeting. And I was pretty cautious about, you know, how bad things might happen. Not to say I understood that the financial crisis was coming. I didn't. But I, I could see how things could go wrong. And I think that uh, that was because I guess I was a little bit more skeptical about you know, that housing prices would keep going up uh, over time. I thought that, you know, typically what happens is, you know, if you think about what was happening during the housing crisis, you know, subprime mortgages increased the demand for housing. That caused home prices to go up. That caused the loss experience on those subprime mortgages to be low because as long as the prices were rising, people could refinance or sell their house. But the other part of it was that as home prices were going up, that was causing more supply to come onto the market. And essentially what happened was the supply eventually caught up with the demand, and then prices started to flatten out. And once that happened, people realized that subprime uh, mortgage lending wasn't, wasn't actually really so great. And then demand started to fall for homes, and then prices started to fall, and then you could still see the whole thing start to run in reverse. So I think it's, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about, you know, what contribution you can make, it's really important to sort of focus on, you know, what are the things that everybody believes uh, and are are there some of them that are maybe not quite as true as people <laughs> really think? How was your experience like working the Fed back in those days, 2007, 2008, 2009, when the financial crisis started to unwrap? Um, it must be a very chaotic time, right? I imagine. Well, it was challenging because, uh, first of all, I mean, we you know the, the most important thing is to make sure you get the diagnosis right. Like, what's really the problem? So that's number one. So you can't you got to take your time because if you don't take your time and don't get the diagnosis right, you're not going to come up with the right answer. And then two, the second part is, okay, now that I have the diagnosis, what tools do I have in my toolkit that I can actually, that will actually be useful for the patient that's in distress? And, you know, the Federal Reserve's powers are pretty limited by law. I mean, I, I used to joke during the financial crisis that people would come in and probably two-thirds of the suggestions were things that the Federal Reserve was not allowed to do by law. So, you know, the Fed is viewed as sort of all-powerful, but in fact, if you look at the Federal Reserve Act, you know, what the Fed can do is actually pretty limited. So then the question is, what can you do to actually address that that that, that problem? And then three, then you try to carry it out in a way that's, you know, credible. You really want the, the, the programs that you implement to be successful because, you know, that makes you credible. And if you're credible, then people will react just to the announcement of the program. You don't actually have to actually... You know, the program is announced today, but it's not usually implemented for several weeks. And so you want to be in a situation where 
people just knowing that the Federal Reserve has announced a new program, that's reassuring to people and makes people more optimistic that things are going to get better. You were just talking about regulation, so I might as well ask you this. Do you think the Federal Reserve's power should be expanded? In- well, I think I think I feel strongly about one thing in particular. I think that uh, right now we have a banking system that I think is in pretty good shape. You know, we've raised the capital standards, uh, we've raised the liquidity standards. Uh, supervision is is really paid close attention to risk management and bank governance. So I think the banking system is in good shape. But if you look at the U.S. financial system, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens outside of the core banking system. And that's the part I worry about because the Federal Reserve doesn't have much authority over that part of the financial system. And it has very limited authority to lend to that part of the financial system should it get under, come under distress. So uh, there is no, you know, lender of last resort uh, in peacetime for that part of the financial system. And I, th- I think it'd be good to have legislation that broadened the Fed's ability to lend as a lender of last resort during peacetime. Uh, right now, the Fed's only authority to lend to the non-banking sector is under what's called Section 13.3, which can only be used uh, in unusual and exigent circumstances when there is no other source of funding available. So what that tells you is, is that's something that can only be used really late. You're really already deep in the crisis before you can use that. That's probably too late. So, I mean, we got the SEC. We got something like uh, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, um, CFTC. I mean, we have all those organizations. Do you think those agencies work well together? Or, or why not just bundle all the financial regula- uh, regulators into one big agency? Well, I think, then- you know, I think there'd be sort of two problems with that. One, political, that would never happen. Uh, you know, we had a financial crisis that was the worst since the Great Depression, yet the CFTC and the SEC are still separate. And, you know, the SEC is the cash market, the CFTC is the futures market. You can, you know, you, you know from a public policy perspective, it would probably make sense to, for those two entities to be merged together. That hasn't happened. So even if it made sense to have a, you know, a, a you know, one regulatory agency that, that that's just not going to happen. The second problem with it, too, is you do really want to have some diversity of perspective. And so I'm not sure that having one big mega regulator would necessarily be a great outcome because, you know, then you probably would make, you know, wouldn't see the world quite as clearly and you wouldn't have different voices that would be represented. So I'm not sure that I would think that's a great idea. I mean, what I'd like to see, I think the Financial Stability Oversight Council in principle is a really good idea. But, you know, the, the key thing is actually making it effective uh, in practice. And I think it's challenging uh, for the Financial Stability Oversight Council in two respects. Number one, uh, it's chaired by someone from the executive branch of the government. And that means that politicizes the FSOC to some degree. And number two, uh, the agencies that make up the FSOC membership don't really want to give their authority to the FSOC. And so in some ways, they're not really enthusiastic members about the FSOC and the FSOC mission. So that makes it harder for the Financial Stability Oversight Council to be successful. But I think in principle, you do want some entity that's thinking about financial stability broadly. And I think that, you know, is useful. I now, you know, the good thing is that the Federal Reserve today is taking financial stability much more seriously than it was prior to the financial crisis. Uh, they now pub- publish a financial stability report twice a year. 
uh, on a regular basis. Financial stability is discussed at Federal Open Market Committee meetings. So, you know, the Federal Reserve is putting a lot more weight on financial stability than it did before. So what's the future of financial regulation that you think we're, we're headed towards? Well, I'm not really sure. I don't. I think in the near term, not much is going to change. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, po- post the financial crisis, there were a lot of changes that were implemented under the Dodd-Frank Act and also internationally, Basel III. So we did strengthen the core of the system quite substantially. Uh, now there's been a little bit of a pressure to, to unwind some of the regulations. But I would say generally... The unwind has been pretty modest uh, at this point. So, you know, if it went on a lot further, then I'd be concerned that we were just, you know, repeating the the mistakes of the past. But so far, I would say that the changes to the regulatory regime over the last year or two have been pretty modest. So, I'm not I'm not that concerned yet. I really worry about the non-bank part of the financial system. Is, it, is, is that going to be regulated well enough? Is that the biggest problem with the American or world financial system today? Well, I think that you know the U.S. You know, economy is in pretty good shape, and and U.S. financial systems in in pretty good shape. But you know, what I worry about is you know the next time you have an economic downturn and you have more stress in the financial system, will there, will we sort of know what's happening over here in the non-bank financial part of the system? And that's important in the U.S. because in the U.S. the banking system is a relatively small share of the financial system compared to most other countries. You know, in Europe and Japan, banks make up a much more uh, predominant share of, of, of financial of the financial market system. So so what do you think is the financial market? What what is finance? You've been in this for for, for so many years. Well it's a good question. I mean I guess I think of finance as playing two, you know, key roles. The first role is intermediating funds between savers and borrowers, right? So savers have money that they want to save and invest and earn returns to basically support them when they're older in terms of their into in terms of their lives and borrowers basically have things that they want to do they want to buy homes they want to invest in businesses so the first thing finance does is sort of match the borrowers and, and savers together and the second thing i think finance does is it helps uh, if it, this is finance working well it helps people address the risks they have so interest rate risk credit risk um, you know that's something that you know f- derivatives, you know, financial derivatives can help people manage. You know, interest rate swaps, for example, fixed rate uh, obligations exchange for floating rate obligations. So I think finance can actually help people, um, you know, essentially take the take the risk pro- take their risk and adjust their risk using financial market instruments. So I think those are the two sort of positive things that finance has to offer. Where do you think um, finance is headed in the future? I mean, there's a lot of buzz about fintech, internet fi- finance. Um, do you think it will, the financial industry will be seriously disrupted by by tech innovations, or do you think it will just sort of? I you know I think it's too soon to say. I mean, I think that for sure, uh, I think people are going to use technology as a delivery vehicle. So already for smaller for people that are not you know big in terms of the amount of financial assets they have. You have robo-advisors, so it's, you know, you know, essentially intelligent machines sort of giving advice to people about how to invest. So I think you're going to have more technology to essentially reduce that, that cost of intermediation and get people better information to, to so they can make their decision. I mean, one of the challenges we have in this country is people aren't really that financially literate. Uh, and that's a problem because 
the government, by number of actions it's made over the last 20, 30 years, is actually forcing more and more of the financial decisions onto the individual. So think about 30 years ago, we had defined benefit uh, pension plans where the company, you work for a company for a long period of time, and then they would pay you a monthly pension when you retired. And all the financial risk of paying that pension was on the corporation, not on the individuals. Now you have defined uh, contribution plans where all the risk of the of investing and making sure you have enough money in your in your defined uh, contribution plan to fund your retirements on the individuals, and so that that's challenging because a lot of people aren't that financially literate. So I think that's that's a real challenge. What would you say is one view that you have that other people don't usually have, or uh, wouldn't agree with? This sort of do you have any unusual contrarian view on the world and? Well, I mean, I, from time to time, I'll, you know, I always have some contrarian views. I mean, I, I just wrote a piece this week basically arguing that the risk of recession in the U.S. was pretty low. Uh, you know, there's a lot of anxiety about recession risk right now because growth in the rest of the world is weak and the yield curve is very flat. And so people are pretty anxious about the outlook in the U.S. And I basically argue that, no, they shouldn't be that anxious. Everything looks pretty good. Uh, fiscal policy is still stimulative. Financial conditions are accommodative. Um, probably uh, the administration will reach a deal with China on trade. So I think generally, right now, my contrarian view is that the U.S. economy is probably going to do better than what people expect. Let's not just talk about recession. What about the next huge crisis? I I, I ask this because I was talking to Adam Tooze, who wrote the book yep. Crashed, and he basically has this view that saying that you know the next big crisis is not going to be transatlantic. It's not going to be technically saying even just in the financial sector, it's going to be something maybe caused by big corporations, big tech companies, um, things like that. So so very curious to hear your thoughts on like your vision for the, well, for the next. Well, well, it's sort of hard to say, right? Because if you sort of knew where the financial crisis, next financial crisis was coming from, you could do things today to prevent it. So typically what happens is financial crises come about for things that people haven't really fully uh, anticipated. I mean, the one risk I guess I'm particularly worried about is cyber risk because we don't have a really good sense of how uh, good our defenses are. Uh, we don't have a really good uh, set of procedures in terms of how do we, when if something does get disrupted and data d does get corrupted, how do you actually bring it back on 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 online? Uh, so I think cyber risk is something that I'm I'm actually quite nervous about. Do you think tech and finance will sort of have some sort of clash in the future? I asked you this question. I no, a I don't. Couple I don't think necessarily a clash. I mean, I mean, there are definitely you know tech companies that want to disintermediate uh, the big commercial banks and the big in investment banks. Uh, and so the question is, will they be successful in doing that? Uh, you know, I, I think it's really too soon to say. It's not like the the investment banks and the big commercial banks don't also have you know large tech bug budgets and really smart people working on these same problems. And I and especially with respect to the commercial banks, remember the commercial banks still have that last mile of pipe into the Federal Reserve uh, and into the payment system. And so the ability, you know, to, to be a bank, uh, to have deposit insurance, to be have access to the Fed, uh, that's pretty important. And so it's going to be an interesting question about what does it mean for tech companies that don't want the regulation that goes along with having that last mile, how far can they actually get? I mean, you know, you look at something like, uh, you know, Apple and Apple Pay. Now, Apple Pay, you know, sounds really cool, but really all it is is rather than 
pulling out your credit card to be scanned. You just pull out your phone to be essentially scanned. And it's not really that big an innovation. So I think it's going to be interesting to see whether tech can really come up with something truly novel uh, that disintermediates existing uh, firms. I mean, Bitcoin people have been talking about for a number of years and you know, distributed ledger technology. But so far, at least, you know, the amount of things that we've actually seen happen that have actually truly been disruptive to, you know, the existing, you know, established firms has been pretty modest. So I'm, I'm just not sure at this point. So it's not like you're seeing a future where decentralized technology totally changed the finance world, the Google coming in, collecting data from well, everybody in different yeah, ways. Well, well, part of the problem is that, you know, in the, uh, you know, it's not that easy for uh, tech companies to get into banking because we have all sorts of rules about commerce and banking uh, can't mix. So the United States, there's a pretty strong uh, barrier for business firms to actually get into commercial banking, and that barrier makes it harder. Uh, and, you know, Google and Amazon, they don't want to be regulated by, uh, by you know, the uh, financial sector regulators, and so you know they want to they, they want to go as far as they can, but they want to be short, you know step short of that regulation. So the banks have a pretty unique position. well, and 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 you know deposit insurance a pretty is a pretty nice thing to have because it means that you have assets that are really safe uh, to to your customers, and you know the the federal deposit insurance has been proven to be very robust, even through you know, very deep uh, financial crisis. And so that's uh, something that the banks have uh, that works very well. And I think that gives them, you know, quite a bit of uh, staying power. Uh, before I, in our interview, I want to ask you a couple questions on, I guess, reflection on, on looking back into your life. I mean, looking back, what do you think was the biggest failure you had uh, or, or the toughest moment in your, in your career? So, well, and I didn't. I mean, I I had a time. I had a period at Goldman Sachs where um, my boss retired. The chief U.S. economist job was now open, and Goldman wasn't sure what they wanted to do with that job. There was an outside candidate who was a very strong outside candidate, and then there was me, and and it took the firm about six months to figure out who was going to get the job. And that wasn't fun <laughs> because if I hadn't gotten the job, I probably was going to have to leave uh, the organization, and I didn't want to leave. So that was that was uh, difficult. Um, everyone today must consider you an extremely successful, and highly respected person in any regard. Uh, but do you have any regrets or, or things that you you've done that you consider quite? unsuccessful uh, in the past? Well, there have been times when I've tried to convince people to do things and I haven't been successful uh, in, in carrying the day in terms of the argument. I mean, one, one of my favorite stories is during the financial crisis, there was this facility called the MMIFF. I don't remember what the letters even stand for, but it was basically a facility to help support the money market mutual fund industry. And uh, I thought that this facility was not really going to be very successful, that no one would use it. Uh, that we didn't need it because we had already set up another facility to support the money market mutual fund industry, and we also had the commercial paper funding facility that was supporting the commercial paper market. And I pushed pretty strongly that let's not do this. We don't need this. And uh, I lost the argument. Uh, and then the facility was stood up, 
And what was ironic about it, it was never used. <laughs> <laughs> so I was right in, with the benefit of hindsight, but I was very frustrated at the time because it's just, I, you know, it's coming back to my prior comments. I think when you introduce things, you want to make sure that they work. You want to make sure they're successful. And so I felt that there was a cost to introducing something that was, you know, superfluous, that wasn't actually going to be useful. Uh, but I lost the argument. So that's happened many times. I've lost many, many arguments <laughs> over the years in terms of things that I wanted to do that uh, that, that I couldn't convince people to, to, to go along with. I mean, at the Fed, no one person has the authority. It's, it's by consensus. And so sometimes you win the arguments and sometimes you lose. Any time that you just feel, feel so frustrated by all the... Uh, I mean, I've had frustrating times in my career. I had a period in my career at Goldman where my boss basically thought that if I did better, uh, he would do worse. And I didn't think that's how the world worked. I thought if I did well, the group would do better and he would get credit for being ahead of the group. So it was pretty frustrating that he was sort of holding me back because he was afraid that if I did well that that was going to hurt him. Uh, so, you know, so, you, so I sort of felt my career, I was like sort of running in quicksand in my career. I wasn't getting as much traction as I wanted How to. How do you resolve those? Decisions? Well, what happened was he, 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 he left. And uh, when I took over the group, I decided that <laughs> I was going to run the group to- totally differently. I was going to try to make everybody in the group as, as energized and successful as possible. And my thesis was that if that happened, the group would be successful. And if the group was successful, I would be successful. And my thesis was correct. That worked really well. I mean, I, I mean, so, you know, if you're running a group and a group is doing well, uh, the, the, the head of the group gets way too much credit. <laughs> they get more credit than they deserve, frankly. Um, um, you are extremely personable and, and kind to, to young people, and, uh, which, which made me very curious. What do you think is the biggest strength in your personality that sort of stayed with you all those years? I mean, you were just saying about the calm temperament, and and based on my short interaction with you, I just felt that, I mean, using young people's term, you're so chill. You know, you know, what I'm saying like it's just. I remember after finishing um, dinner with you last Thursday, and my, I was talking to my friend, and you were like. You you were so nice to us. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you know I, you know, I remember when I was starting out and not knowing exactly what I was going to do, and I got some good advice from some people that you know that I worked with. I I was a research assistant for a professor at UC Berkeley for five years, and you know he really helped me, and I appreciated his <laughs> guidance and wisdom. And so you know you want to hand it on. So what would be your advice to, to young people today? Do you, would you still advise them to, I, I guess, go into finance, go into econ? It's not like a one path that you think is... No, I think you, you, you want to follow your passions. You want to you do something that really you know, you feel passionate about because if you're passionate about it, you'll do it well. And if you do it well, you'll succeed in it, number one. And if you're passionate about it, you, it won't really feel like work. You know, it'll, it'll it'll feel like fun. <laughs> you know, you'll get uh, you'll get a lot of uh, you know, p- 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 it'll be pleasing to you. Uh, and so, if you do that, that's number one. And the second thing is just keep building your human capital. You know, if you don't, if you're in a job and the job starts to get stale, it's then it's time to find a new job. Because you know, just because you can do a job well doesn't mean that the job is still helping you grow as a as a as a person and becoming more expert. I mean, I left Goldman not because I was unhappy with Goldman Sachs, but there essentially was no job uh, that they would offer me that I wanted. You know, that was sort of a null set. I could either stay in my current job as long as I essentially wanted, 
but there's nothing I could aspire to within the firm because what my expertise didn't sort of match the positions that they had available. Uh, so it was time to move. It was time to leave. So I retired from Goldman before I actually had the job at the New York Fed. I didn't really know what my next move was going to be just because I just felt it was time to, to, to move on. So it was all about the learning experience. Well, I just felt I needed to do something new. Uh, yeah, I think learning, learning, building your human capital. I mean, you know, I used to, you know, joke with people. I said, if you, if you, if you, if you, if you're getting a job where where you're where you're actually able to build your human capital, it's sort of cool. They're paying you to work for them, but you're actually building, learning. You're yeah. learning and you're building your own capabilities. So that's sort of a pretty good deal. Uh, aside from passion, how do you become good at something? And I was talking to one of my friends that day, and he said. You have to be obsessed with something, and you have to just work this. I mean, ten thousand hour rule, or however you call it. You have to be so good at it in order to succeed. Whereas, if you are just sort of learning a little bit about this, learning a little bit about that, uh, maybe you are a well-rounded person, but you'll never actually get to the to achieve greatness. So, I'm very curious hearing your thoughts on. Do you think? I don't know. I guess I, I, I think you can be a generalist and still be, you know, successful and contribute. I think, I think the big thing is uh, focus. You know, just really be intensely focused on the problem at hand and not let, not like people push you off the thing that you're actually working on, the thing that's really in front of you. Um, if you can really be focused and you know, really be able to concentrate on the task at hand. Uh, that helps a lot. I used to have people come into my office and they would talk to me and I'd be so focused on what I was doing, I wouldn't even remember the conversations. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, obviously that ability to really get, you know, really focus on the issue at hand and, and not be able to have a lot of distractions uh, is helpful. And you have to learn how to be uh, economical in terms of, you know, how you you know, interact with people. Like, you know, when you write an email response, my wife and I joke with each other, her email responses are much more elaborate than mine. <laughs> and, you know, for me, it's like, yeah, I want to really be efficient with my email response so I can move on to the next thing. Of course. Yeah. Uh, you, you'll be teaching a class in Princeton in the fall semester of 2019, this upcoming fall. What made you decide to come to Princeton? Because before Paul Volcker took over as uh, New York Fed president, he taught at Princeton for a year, and he said in the memoir uh, that, quote, the heavily endowed school was not nearly active enough in teaching and encouraging interest in public management, and he was there to help kindle interest. Um, on our way here, you also sort of mentioned this part of the book. Yeah, well, I thought I was struck by that part of the book too, because obviously it spoke to me now that, that, especially that I'm here. Well, I came here for for a couple of di different reasons. One, uh, uh, it's a great university, uh, and number two, I have a good friend, Alan Blinder, who encouraged me to come here, and I've known Alan for many, many years, and he's a great friend of mine. So, you know, it was sort of nice to know that there was someone here that I really was close to that uh, you know would sort of help help figure out how, how, how I could get here and, 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 and spend the year here. So, so I'm, yeah, I live in New Jersey, so it's also not that inconvenient. I don't have to, I didn't have to physically move here. I live about 35, 30, 35 miles away from here. So it's not that hard just to drive down here uh, each day. Uh, so combination, you know, of all those things made it a pretty easy decision. It wasn't a hard decision at all. Uh, any comment you would have in terms of Princeton's culture, what you hope to achieve? Uh, well, in school? I, I sort of want people to, you know, that, that I'm going to teach a course in the fall, and I'm hoping that it's going to be about the financial crisis and the aftermath of the financial crisis. I'm, and I'm hoping that they'll take away 
from that, uh, you know, that the world's complex, uh, that you, know, you always got to be vigilant about thinking about what the vulnerabilities of, of, of the system are. Yeah, you need to think of things holistically. It's a system, not just a, a bunch of individual things. And hopefully also get them, you know, sort of, you know, uh, enthusiastic about the notion of doing public service. I mean, I enjoyed my careers at J.B. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, but uh, not at all as much as I enjoyed working at the New York Fed because, you know, doing policy is much more fun than talking about policy. Uh, and so I was very lucky to get the opportunity to go to be head of the markets group and then be the president of the New York Fed. So that was sort of the... You know, that was the you know, the job that I just couldn't believe I, that I was going to have that opportunity. Since you like policy so much, have you thought about the next step, maybe potentially going back to policymaking? Um, yeah. You know, I'm you know, I'm getting sort of long in the tooth now. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 I'll be surprised if, 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 if that happens. But, you know, I'm certainly going to weigh in. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, st I'm still writing. Uh, so I'm writing some pieces for, for Bloomberg Views and, Uh, you know, I'm going to conferences, speaking at conferences and things. So, I, you know, I'm going to certainly continue to contribute in the policy realm. But you, you wouldn't say it's through big international organizations or think tanks, that, that type of thing? Would you, would you yeah, see yourself never, more? I mean, my view is never say never. I mean, right, right. now I'm, I'm, I'm at Princeton for the year, and I'm yeah. enjoying it. <laughs> and, and it's, as you said, focus on the, on the thing there. <laughs> yeah, focus on the thing right, <laughs> right in front of you. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly. great. Um, so the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. I must ask you at the end of our show, What's the punchline here for about the Fed, policy, your vision for our society's future, anything? What's the punchline? Well, the punchline for the Fed is, uh, you know, that they're doing a really good job. Um, <laughs> but they have a ways to go. Uh, Australia is in its 28th year of its economic expansion. The U.S. is in its uh, 11th year of economic expansion. So we have a ways to go. Awesome. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today, Bill. Well, thank you, Peter. <laughs> And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please follow us on policypunchline.com, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.